Oh boy, there's so much mud here at the entrance to the woods. It's been raining and uh, a lot of the trees have already lost their, their leaves. And so this entry to the woods is on a slope, which means that a lot of those leaves through the wind end up right there at the beginning. And then the water, the rainwater also uh, goes down there, which creates this nice entry lake of mud, which I am sure dogs love. There are two small dogs running towards me, super enthusiastically. <laughs> They're not on a leash. And so, of course, the big, the big risk is, there you go. <laughs> Hey, buddy. Nee, niet zit, niet springen. Ze vinden dit altijd zo interessant. En denken ze dat het een speeltje is. So these dogs are like super enthusiastic. And uh, of course they see the Tribble, which is uh, the, the adopted name for my, for my windshield on, on top of my microphone. It looks like a Tribble. But for dogs... It looks like prey <laughs> or like something I'm going to throw so they can run after it. And uh, so they are now running. Well, that lady is smart. She puts them on the leash before they reach the, the mud lake. Because some of these dogs, they, when they see mud, they want to take a bath. <laughs> Which you know, I guess is not something you prefer when you're heading home with your dogs. These two dogs are white. And so if they jump into the mud, the mud that's going to be even a bigger disaster. <laughs> like fluffy dogs full of hair. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I'm on top of the hill now. I have to say the woods are still impressively beautiful. It's also because a lot of them have already lost their leaves that I can see through the there's more perspective I can see all the way to the distance and see just this massive forest of golden brown yellow trees in a in a valley in a, like a, a beautiful orange valley of leaves it's it's gorgeous I guess if the sun were shining it would have been even more beautiful but uh, so far no luck. This morning started with a very, very dense mist. I could barely see anything from my window. And it's starting to clear up. It's uh, around lunchtime right now. Or actually, it's before lunchtime because I'm going to have lunch after recording this. But today I wanted to uh, record the walk a bit earlier than I normally do to talk about something important. Hello. Uh, more mud. Whoops. Uh, something important that uh, was uh, was addressed in the podcast talk section of of the Discord server. So for the patrons, we have created this community on Discord, and so there's also a feedback slash discussion section. Um, so after I post a new episode of the walk or the break or a video or something like that, that's where uh, people can react to it. And sometimes I talk about stuff that triggers a, a longer discussion, and so. Uh, one of those uh, issues that uh, resonated with uh, a few of of my patrons was 
What do you do when you're disappointed by the church? Um, what do you do when you're hurt by someone of the church? It could be a parishioner, it could be a pastor, a bishop, it could be a personal experience, it could also be um, something you perceive uh, from a distance when uh, a representative of the church says something that is that is also applicable to your life or your situation and, and it hurts you and it triggers you. What do you do in situations like that? Do you just ignore it? Should you consider the church to be without flaw? Um, is it all about, well, it's a pastor, it's a bishop, so I'll just have to, I'll have to take it in. <laughs> I have to adjust my opinion about these things. Um, or the opposite, which you often see, is people nowadays don't feel that <laughs> that obligation to stay put, and they just walk. It's it's one of the big issues. Um, I think a lot of um, <clears throat> parishes and, and bishops and the church in general in Western countries have to deal with. The vocal people seem to be no longer vocal. They're just they're just gone. <laughs> <laughs> when I grew up, when I was in seminary, and even before that, and when I was in secondary school, there was a lot of debate about the church and uh, its moral stance and uh, what the Pope said, what the bishops did or didn't do. And the debate was also a public debate. You would still have talk shows that would invite proponents and opponents uh, of, of, of church rule on TV, on primetime, that has completely stopped. There, was a, there were movements, like you had the progressives, and they wanted to, to go even beyond the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, and for them everything should be up in the air, and uh, we should change everything. And it was this, this very tenacious uh, rebellion against everything that they perceived to be conservative, and uh, and halting the progress of the world and uh, stopping the church from from being what Jesus envisioned, etc. And then you would have like a counter movement, uh, which then also started organizing their big rallies where they would go the total opposite. <laughs> and it would all be about obedience to the Pope and liturgy uh, as, as, let's say, as... Um, uh, I would say conservative because it wasn't orth it wasn't really about orthodoxy orth orthodoxia um, in, in the Greek word refers to um, ha being being having the right doctrine but a lot of these differences were not doctrinal I would say they were more cultural or, or sometimes even just tribal it's like what tribe do you identify with and and which tribe is the enemy? <laughs> it's like this, what you see in the television series Lost, if you recall, where <clears throat> our group of uh, stranded passengers on the island meet the others. And they keep talking about them as the others. And it was a, a nice mirror for our societies where we, we sometimes do that. We create our tribe or we, we imagine the world as a collection of tribes. We identify with one tribe, which then compels some people to... Um, mount resistance to anything that isn't you know that seems to to threaten their their tribe so anyway there was a lot going on in society this is one of the reasons that i 
um, I was so happy to do the first half of my seminary time in Belgium, where there was none of that. Uh, Belgium is a, is a different, has a different historical background. It's, uh, I was in, a, in the French-speaking part of, of that country, and uh, even though the people are at least culturally, economically, politically even very similar to uh, the people in Holland, um, one of the big, issue, big differences was that in, in Belgium, um, almost everyone, everybody had a Catholic background. And there was also, so the Catholic Church at that time, because we're talking about, uh, what is it, almost 40 years ago now, well, that's uh, 35 years ago, was, uh, was still a very traditional church in the sense that it was just, church was part of the culture. And uh, even though people were not very, not always very fervent when it came to going to church and receiving sacraments, it was just something that was has always had always been there. Whereas in the Netherlands, of course, we are coming from centuries of conflicts between different religious groups, where in order to to establish yourself and to, or sometimes even to to have the right to believe what you believed and to express that belief in 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 all sorts of uh, rituals, uh, there, was, there was battle, there was strife, there was, there was resistance, and, uh, and also a lot of that had political ramifications. So in my country, there is a long history, I wouldn't say tradition, but definitely a history of, of um, polarization, of, of uh, battle on the, on the level of... Of, uh, of religion and so uh, sometimes you 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 still see that flare up but it's very rare nowadays because that generation that grew up with uh, these religious backgrounds that I that they ad- identified with those generations are almost are, are almost extinct the younger people my generation and even the generation that came after me uh, mostly grew up in a in a more or less secular environment where, um, sure, I, I still had my first communion uh, with, with um, more than half of my school classmates. The generation after me, you're an exception if, as a child, if your parents still go to church or if you want to receive the sacrament of confirmation, especially first communion that still has for a lot of, like, people that are culturally Catholic still has a bit of a kind of a friendly face and it's like one of those rites of passages that uh, most parents are still attracted to but in confirmation well that's usually at an age where kids you know 12 13 years old they're not really that much into (laughs) into the culture of the church anymore plus it's also the other way around the church is not very interested in teenagers. They don't know how to handle them. They don't know how to appeal to them, how to speak their language. Um, because, a lot, let's be honest, a lot of parishes are focused on on the 60, 70 plus generation. Because those are the people that are currently still carrying the church in attendance, financially, uh, when it comes to the people that man the various groups, the volunteers, they're all of that older age group and 
uh, it's also a problem that a lot of the priests are of that age group nowadays. I'm also getting older, and so th- th- we have so few young priests that still that are able to relate to that younger generation. And so it's, it, it goes both ways. It's not just the teenagers that don't care about the church anymore, but it's also their church that seems to not, no longer care for teenagers. Um, so uh, the, it's, it, this is, this is, we're on the tipping point in, in my country, and I, I'm pretty sure that this is a development that you see all over the Western world where where we're in in a past and like the the times are really changing uh, we're going into a new era and it's for the church very challenging to figure out how to relate to those changing times and that changing culture um and this is where i think the the gospel can be super helpful uh in in guiding us because the gospels the New Testament has been written from the perspective of people that were an absolute minority, even a persecuted minority. There are no success stories in the Bible. Um, even the story of Jesus himself, even though he had his moments where thousands, maybe tens of thousands people, of people were flocking together to listen to, to his, uh, his talks and explanations and stories and that witnessed their miracles... <clears throat> Towards the end of the story, they're all gone. And there's no one left beneath the cross but uh, Jesus' mother and his beloved disciple, John. That's it. And so I think it's important to always go back. If you want to know where to go, you have to go back to where it all, how it all started. And so, but the thing is, this does not always happen. At, at this time of transition is extremely um, is difficult, is challenging, it's frightening change, especially if it's change that you have not initiated, is, uh, is, is of, often feels like a menace or something you would rather avoid. So there is the, there, there are many ways in which people are reacting to these changes. Some would like to hold on to what they know. This is very common in parishes, and I'm confronted with it almost on a weekly basis when I assist here in the various locations of, uh, of the parish here, where people are so stuck in the way they used to do things that they, they don't even want to think about a, a different approach. Um, so reframing the situation and seeing it as a challenge and as an opportunity for growth and to reinvent yourself as a follower of Jesus, that doesn't even cross their minds. It's all about preservation of what they currently have. And then lamentation, that's the, that's the other thing. Because if you don't really trust yourself or you trust God enough to, to venture into a new direction, then what remains, I, what remains is... Uh, uh, fear of this change, or even uh, mourning, uh, mourning in the sense of of regretting that the times are changing, uh, which then can also sometimes evolve into blaming other people for what happens. This is not this is universal. This is not just in the church that this happens. We do this all the time. The question, of course, is this is 
is this, is this beneficial? Is this fruitful? Is, does this help you? Does this help the church? So um, I just crossed another big pool of mud. <laughs> Later tonight, we, we will have to run in this, in this same forest. I kind of dread these times where running also means <clears throat> that you're going to come back. I have these orange running shoes. But in this type of weather, when I get back home, they're just dark gray, <laughs> covered in mud. Someone showed me on TikTok, I think you can just put them in the, in the washing machine. But I don't trust that because <laughs> these shoes are expensive. They're glued together. I'm always a bit wary when, when I see hacks like that. Uh, who, who, who tells me that it's still the same shiny pair of shoes that comes that, that they show at the end of the of the TikTok video we who tells me that those are the same shoes as the 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 horribly uh, <laughs> muddy ones that they put in at the beginning so um the the question is does it help and i don't think it does so the the, the biggest threat i think for the church is not that people disagree or that there is strive, that uh, uh, people are disagreeing, um, that they oppose themselves. Because that, this is something I learned as a young priest during one of those <clears throat> um, courses that we had to help us deal with, um, with conflicts. So it was conflict management, basically, in a church situation, which is very, very important for, for young priests to learn um, how to deal with. And one of the things that the, the let's say, the, the coach told us was, if there's conflict, instead of walking away or running away or fearing it, embrace it because it means that people care. People only fight about stuff they really care for. So when you are in a situation of conflict, it means you're very close to the heart of the matter. And then, of course, <laughs> you have to be able to turn that around and and uh, help you know figure out ways to to dialogue with one another and not get stuck in that opposition but he said the biggest danger is when you never hear someone complain when people are not fighting anymore when they don't voice their opinions because it means they have walked away the silence that you hear in your parish or in your diocese or in, um, in your country when it comes to matters of faith is not the silence of peace. It's a silence of emptiness. <laughs> and I, I always remember that. I was like, was, for me, that was a total reframing of what conflict meant. And I always remembered it. Doesn't really mean that I immediately knew how to embrace conflict and be happy when someone was attacking me or whatever. No, I mean, it's a lifelong struggle to deal with, with situations like that because our first initial uh, um, reaction pattern that has helped us when we were young was, of course, fight or flight. You know, it's like, oh, I need to get out of this situation. I don't want this tension. Um, avoidance like not wanting to have any conflict um, is basically a translation of the, uh, the, the flight response. You know, uh, the, the ghosting that is currently um, such a hot topic. Uh, when, when, you know, people write you an email and you just don't reply because 
eh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I, um, I want to keep my distance or maybe I'll say something that, and it's not the right thing. So we just don't reply. We don't say anything anymore. And the other person is like, why don't I get a reply? I'm, I'm just like a ghost for this person, apparently. Um, so, and ghosting, I think, is just a stress response. It's just people, and I do it too. I do it too. And we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to resolve this right now. So I'm just not going to re- re- reply. There are times where I don't even open my email because I'm in a tense situation. There's negotiation going on and I'm afraid that the other person will be mad at me or uh, will, will uh, attack me or, or will be disappointed <laughs> about me. And so... My response, my pattern is always flight. It's not really fight. I'm not much of a fighter. Uh, because, again, it's linked to the way I, was, I, I grew up in my, my childhood, where I usually was the target of the, the bullies. I would get beaten up and uh, they would steal my, my, literally my marbles on the, in the schoolyard. Um, they would wait for me in small groups and then uh, insult me and try to trigger me. And I, I had no older brother that I could, uh, that could help me. And if I went to my parents, they would say, well, you know, you just have to talk. You have to understand the point of view of the other person. I was like, these guys are just attacking me. So one of the main, uh, uh, you could say, <laughs> reaction patterns that I have developed was always uh, flight, back away. And I still do that in, in tense situations, although difference is I'm now aware of that and it's not good so um, before I, I talk a little bit more about this situation so what happens if you are confronted with with uh, something that that provokes resistance in you where you're like you feel hurt you want to do something you or you just want to walk away you have that fight or flight response when it comes to the way the church has treated you talk to you, uh, has triggered you because of things they say in general. Before that, I want to tell you a story, share a story. This, this happened last year um, in the summertime. Um, I was filming in the south of the country um, together with Hugo, uh, my cameraman, and uh, we, ha- we were covering an event that had been postponed for two years because of covid it was a passion play. And not just a passion play. It's the most famous passion play in the Netherlands. Where an entire village works for more than a year on the production of the Passion of, of Christ. Um, in, in a theatrical form. It's so popular and such a big thing. That they even created an entire um, theater for it. and Like an, an open air theater with... Um, uh, where they rebuild Jerusalem and it stays there for months while they do this passion play three times a day. Thousands of people every single day. It's, it's massive. And so because of the fact that it had been postponed for a couple of years um, and, and, and the tension, of course, well, will this be the, the will it finally happen or are we going to get another wave of COVID? I thought this is, this is a fascinating story of 
you know, how, how people want to or try to tell the story of Jesus in difficult times. It's almost a metaphor of what the church is trying to do or should be trying to do. I'm not saying it, the church always does it, but should be uh, striving to, to do in these difficult times. Um, at one point, so we filmed the preparations and there were, there were rehearsals. And in between the rehearsals, we interviewed the main actors and the director and uh, the, the musicians, etc. At one point, I split up. It was, there was so much to cover. We only had um, two days, I think, to film um, th- three episodes of TV. So at one point, I was going to interview... Um, our, our main host, the, the person who had made all the connections with us, and he was going to show me an exposition um, that was taking place in a museum that used to be a former church, or that used to be a church, it's now a former church, used as a museum, like a cultural museum about uh, the various traditions in the south. The south, southern part of the country is... Uh, is, is Catholic. Uh, the Ref- uh, Protestant reform hasn't really succeeded in, uh, in uh, dominating the, the culture um, as much as it did in the northern part of the country. And so, uh, hello. The, um, the museum uh, temporarily had also an exposition about this Passion Play and about the history of the Passion Play. And at the same time, uh, Hugo was going to film uh, some other interviews, and I don't re- recall exactly what he was doing but so I was there with this guy very very sympathetic man very charismatic he also played a role in in uh, the passion play and had been doing that since his youth it was as a child he had already been uh, part of this tradition his parents were were have had been actors and uh, I, I just remember the warm welcome that he gave us we it was a long ride to get there and uh, he welcomed us and he said, you know, the, before we do interviews, it's time for an important tradition here in the South. And that is coffee and vlai. They call it vlai, uh, which is um, it's a cake. It's a round, circ- uh, a round cake with... Um, uh, it's a very simple cake. Usually the topping um, can be fruit or even like sweet rice and stuff. It's a, it's a delicious delicacy which is very actually very hard to make and so even in the north when you want to buy a cake like that they imported it they no, nobody is able to to replicate those that recipe so it's much cheaper and easier for them to just drive a big truck from the south every day to all these bakeries that sell these cakes so um and it was just it was a very I don't know, just super sympathetic. I, I was struck that he was thinking about us. You know, oftentimes when you go and interview people, they're nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be on television. What am I going to say? And this guy was like, no, I, I want to be a good host for you guys. You must be tired. Let's first have cake and coffee. And then, you know, I will show you around. And he put us at ease, whereas normally we have to do that with our interviewees. So I followed him and gave me a, a, a beautiful tour of that museum. Lots of lots, lots of history there. Um, he told me that even in the Second World War, 
they continued, they tried to continue the, the tradition, even though the Nazis were, were sabotaging everything. And then later on, in the 50s and in the 60s, every time the, the way in which they, they, they wrote the play and the things that they emphasized uh, followed the cultural, the cultural changes. So in the 60s, of course, it was all like very 60s, very flower power, you know, bright colors and uh, very... Um, although the texts are always based, of course, on the biblical text, um, it, it, you, you saw that every age had its own Jesus and its own, its own passion play. I, that was one of the fascinating things for me to film because it shows that the gospel stays the same, the story stays the same, Jesus stays the same, but it always has to be translated to new times. It has to be adapted language-wise, thematically, so it retains its relevancy. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is it's always relevant, but you need translators. This is why uh, pastors and bishops have don't just have a pastoral duty, they also have um, a teaching duty. They're also teachers, as well as governors. They also have to kind of manage everything and make sure that that structurally uh, uh, the, the, the people of God stay together. But the teaching aspect, that is very important of priests and bishops. Keep this in mind, because this is important for our discussion at a later point. So, um, at, at one point, he was telling me that um, the village, of course, is also changing and not everybody's Catholic anymore or goes to church anymore. So at one point, they, they found an ideal candidate to play Jesus. The thing was, he wasn't. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't even baptized, I think. And so there was a lot of debate. You know, can we entrust the, the central role of a passion play that is meant to tell the story of Christ, can, can we entrust that to someone who is not, who, is, who doesn't believe in, in, uh, in the gospel? And they ultimately went with it. And it was a big success. And, uh, and he said, you know what, this, that's the beauty about this passion play and about this, this story. Not only does the effect, effectiveness of the story depend on the actors and on the delivery, but the story also impacts the actors, us, as players, and it transforms us. And it changes our view and it th- changes our thinking. Because you're part of this story. For, for, for weeks in a row, several times a day, you become the story. I thought it was beautiful. And then I, so I, I was done with that part of the interview. And then he said, is your camera off? He said, good. He says, I want to share something with you that I, I don't want to say that on the ca- on camera because it, it's, it's kind of beside the scope of what you're trying to film. But I do want you to know that this has also been both very important to me and very hard for me. The, 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 this openness of, or this willingness to involve people that are different from, from your own uh, cultural or religious background, but to still welcome them in the performance of this story. He said, the reason that, is so, that that is so personal for me and so important and that I get angry when people even put in question the validity of, of, of non-Catholic people participating in this project 
is because I know what it is to be rejected. And I've, well, this is kind of obvious to me that there was a personal story behind it. So we continued the conversation and he told me, um, this exposition here in this museum, it's, it's, it's mounted by my partner, my husband, a man. And, uh, this for a lot of people was super controversial because we are controversial. Our relationship is controversial. And they reject us before, because of it. Not everyone, but some do. And uh, he says, my entire life, I have faced rejection. I've met people who, even without knowing me, told me that I was wrong, that I had no right to be involved in the parish life. He grew up in a very Catholic family. He was an altar boy. Um, his parents were involved in the in the parish, but the moment people discovered that he was gay, um, he he felt that he was excluded. And then there were priests in the parish that that derided him, and 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 were preaching, and even in their homilies they would rile against homosexual culture and. Uh, would say all sorts of, for him, very hurtful things. Because it was about him. It was, it was about, <laughs> about his life. And he said every time that a priest would say these hurtful things, even though they said it was doctrine, and it was just, it was uh, put forward as something that, well, if you're a Catholic, then you'll just have to deal with it. You have to change your your uh, your life your maybe not your identity but definitely your behavior because this is this is uh, what it takes to be a catholic otherwise you're not welcome and every time he said that a priest who had no idea who i was and um, had no idea what he was talking about because he never asked would would stay uh, sit stand on at the pulpit and uh, proclaim these things he said it, it felt like a knife in my heart because he was actually saying, you don't belong. You're not good enough. And the reason that it triggered him so much, and, and, and he said it was because as a child, he, he was raised in a traditional Catholic family. And so his parents expected him to just follow in their footsteps. You know, he was a, a nice uh, somewhat timid boy and and his parents had no idea that actually the things that they expected of him you know, to do the boy things and play with cars and uh, <laughs> go, uh, you know <laughs> run or build uh, with, with the, the other boys he was more interested in what girls did you know, playing with puppets or uh, <laughs> making dresses for, you know, the creative side, etc. And then he, he would often get that kind of rejection from his father. Like, that's not what boys do. And so, and I'm, I'm reconstructing his story because I don't remember the details. But what did strike me was that more and more he started to realize growing up um, that he was, he was not interested in girls and he felt an attraction to boys. 
but he was petrified. He was so scared that that would somehow be known and that his father would reject him even more that he never talked about it. And uh, at one point, uh, he tells me that he remembered that, that there was an age, I, I assume that he was, you know, in, in maybe in secondary school already. And he felt that he, he was, it was such a burden, this secret. And it was so laden, uh, loaded, I should say, with culpability, with guilt. Because this, this, these feelings were, you know, you should confess that. You should, uh, <laughs> it's a sin to be like this, to think like this, to act upon it, etc., etc. So he was so conflicted. And, you know, a young boy in his puberty having all, to deal with these very big emotions and then living in this um, extremely strong Catholic environment with all these expectations, with priests that tell you that this is the truth and this, uh, deal with it. He, he felt that I, I can't carry this burden anymore. I want to tell my parents about how I feel. And, and he was scared. He, was, he locked himself up in his room and he, he was so afraid of their reaction. Um, and then he ultimately went down the stairs, trembling. And he said to his parents, I, I, want, I want to tell you something important. And it's very difficult. And I, 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 I'm afraid. And so their parents were looking at him like, what are you talking about? You know that you can tell us anything. Well, why are you, why are you so emotional all of a sudden? Which, of course, is also, <laughs> again, making it more difficult for him to, to, uh, to tell them how he felt and what he was dealing with. And then he ultimately shared that he was gay and that... Um, and then that he needed their support. And then he said, something that often happens in these situations. Well, his mother was, uh, if I recall well, was very understanding. They were all, they, both of them were very taken aback. Like, we never noticed anything about you that was like that. You know, like avoiding the words, you know. It's like, <laughs> and... So his mother was, was kind. His father, not at all. He was really struggling with this uh, admission and, uh, and not accepting. And it took him a very long time to, to deal with that, which, of course, is for uh, a boy at his age, super difficult when, you're, when you are actually reaching out for support, for help, because it's so difficult to deal with this these questions and you feel so weird and so strange and so out of the of what is normal that um, uh, his father not being not being able to be there for him was was horrible was was very very difficult so but once he kind of admitted to his parents and also to himself that what this is this is how God made me this is how I this is what I am he still continued to face rejection by his former friends. No longer wanted to, ha- to hang out with him. But also, the moment it was known that he was gay, they also tried to remove him from the parish. And they, they, there was this rejection and, 
And of course, can you imagine how that must, I mean, he was telling me that crying. And I was just standing there. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm, I'm here as a documentary maker and not as a pastor. But I feel for you so much. And, and it's so, it must have been so hard to have the church that you love. And he's, I mean, you could tell by everything. He's so much <laughs> a Catholic in, his, in, in, in the core of his being. And, and loves the liturgy and loves it, his faith. It's so important to him. But to have that same church that you love so much not love you back, not accept you, try to remove you from important positions, condemn you, even preemptively, <laughs> even before he made the choice to live together with another man, even before that, he felt like that whatever I do, it's going to be judged. I'm, I'm, it's going to be framed. Um, and uh, he, I, I just, I was so shaken by that. And I, I, like, I wanted to apologize also for what happened. And I said, well, would, have you ever talked with, with your pastor about this? Try to make him more sensitive for the fact that words can hurt. And that even what is still considered to be church doctrine um, it has, no, has a number of levels. You have the, the, the way of thinking about sexuality, about, uh, about marriage, but then you also have words, the way we express that, the way we talk about um, the natural law and then labeling behavior as against human nature, um, aberrant behavior. And then you, you, you can even get into much worse language territory where um, you sometimes hear that also in, in the media where people will, will systematically use the word sodomites for people that are gay. Um, but, and that is, of course, it's implied, that word implies a judgment because that's a, you know, from the Old Testament where... <laughs> The, the sodomy was considered to be grave sin. And uh, it, it, when you use words like that and you tell someone, well, you're in, in your core, you're not natural. You're an aberration. <laughs> that is, for someone who's already so vulnerable, um, let me cross the road here. There are lots of trees on both sides, so I always have to kind of walk almost on the road itself to see if there are no cars approaching. Let me just wait for a second here. Talking and walking is, is good, except for when you're trying to cross a busy road. <laughs> so, um, uh, but it's someone who is, who is looking for support who has already experienced the pain of his own father rejecting him, rejecting him instead of helping him or supporting him or listening, to have the church that you see as your mother in a certain way do the same, it triggers so much hurt and so much pain. And, well, it was obvious. The man was crying. And then he, um, he said, I, I once met the bishop. And... and um, 
I don't know, maybe it was a, a talk that the bishop gave, or I don't know, I don't remember the circumstances, but at one point he met the bishop face to face, and he said, you know, I've listened to your talk, but I wanted to share with you that I struggle uh, as a gay man with this feeling of that I'm not loved, that, I, that I'm not welcome in the church. Um, and I wanted to share that with you because I, 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 I think you're a nice guy and I, you're a wise man and can you help me? And again, he was reaching out and then the bishop, this is his story and the way he, um, he experienced it, experienced it, it experienced it, <laughs> uh, the bishop became flustered and uh, his face kind of grew stern. And he said, um, uh, well, um, that's complicated. Um, let's not talk about this right now in, this, in these circumstances. Um, uh, we, we need to talk about this is important maybe, but let's talk about this some other time, uh, but not now. And, uh, and he walked away. That other time never came. The bishop probably has already forgotten about this. It's even possible that he hasn't even realized that his rejection and the way he looked felt, again, uh, as, as a rejection, as ex- extremely hurtful and painful to that man. Because this was not just a priest. This was the bishop, the pastor, the bishop in Catholic ecclesiology is the most important representative of the church. He's supposed to be a father, a shepherd for his flock. And now he felt castigated by that father and by that shepherd instead of, instead of um, understood or at least loved. You can, you can love someone even if you don't agree with the choices that person makes. And as pastors, as shepherds, we're, we're, we're there to, to love maybe even more specifically, to love even more the people that are kind of outside the norms, are outside the people that have been hurt, people that are struggling, people that have a cross to carry. Well, I, I, I think that that person has a huge cross to carry. Um, and and a lot of has a lot of wounds from throughout his life. And keep in mind, this was the same guy where, at the moment we met him, it was like, "What a nice guy! So incredibly empathetic and uh, and kind and full of humor." But to see that same man cry because the church has disappointed him so much, and even then, even with all that hurt. He said, I still love the church. I still go to church. I still pray. Um, I, because I cannot walk away. This is my church and I love the church even though the church doesn't love me back. And, well, anyway. I was, I was very uh, touched by his story. Also by the candor he told me. I, we had never met before. Um, and yet he felt safe enough to entrust me with this huge burden um, and, and with his personal story. And it, um, I treasured that moment. I still treasure it. Where someone feels um, 
Well, it's not just feel, feeling safe because then it would depend just uh, from, from me doing something. I, I was just there to listen and to... Um, there's this one ad that I keep hearing in a podcast where I think it's a talk show host or no, just a news host from, I think, from CNN or something like that. And he says, I'm not here to tell you what you should think, but I'm here to think about what you tell me. I think that's a brilliant tagline. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to think about what you tell me. It doesn't mean that I'm in favor of a church that never pronounces herself about about things, that doesn't have a moral stance on, on the choices that we make. No, the church is a mother and a father and a guide, just like, just like Jesus was. But because of that responsibility, it's so important to make people feel and understand that you first want to listen and you are here to love. And from that dialogue, from that exchange of love and friendship, you try to guide and to help, but never with the presumption that you know it all. Because doctrine is one thing, but the way we formulate that doctrine, the way we work out how we translate what Jesus taught us, what the church has taught us throughout the centuries, how we translate that to the here and now, to the situations that people deal with now, and also how we, how we um, um, integrate the new insights of psychology, of sociology, um, the church has to listen to scientists. That is very Catholic. It's not, not common in all Christian denominations, but in the Catholic tradition, the church has learned <laughs> to listen to scientists. We have to listen to, uh, to the, the, listen and discern, because it's not just listening, because that would be passive. It's also constant discernment with the Holy Spirit in prayer, thinking, reflecting, praying, but most of all listening. That is how we find a way to, uh, to the future, that this is how we find our way in life. But if you skip the listening part because you feel like, well, listening makes me vulnerable, I don't want to in any way communicate that I... Um, that people can walk over us as a church. We need to have uh, morals. We, there are rules to respect. Then again, when, and I, I'm talking about myself, because I, I have those reactions as well, where, I, where sometimes I'm in a, in, a, in a conflict situation, and then I have this temptation to just, you know, slam the table. And it's like, but this is what the church teaches. This is what, these are the rules. And now you listen to me. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the easy way. It's much harder to make yourself vulnerable. And, to, and also, and this is such an important part of the Christian tradition and of the Catholic tradition, is that the tradition is not a museum. The church has throughout the ages, from the very first start of the church, if you look at the early church fathers, the church has learned from the world around it. it the church stalled 
and got into a rut whenever it closed itself up into a fortress of, uh, of um, either self-pity or, or rightful, right, righteous, righteousness, that's the word. And the church grew and became stronger and more powerful and even more authoritative when it tried to understand the signs of times and learn from the people uh, and, and, from, and from the culture. And again, I'm not advocating that the church should just give up on all its, its uh, positions or doctrine. Or There are a lot of things in church, in church teaching that, are, um, that we consider to be part of the truth. But it's never black and white. There's always, the, there is, for instance, church law. You have church law and there need to be rules. But the first thing you read if you look up the introduction to the book of canon law is the law is there to, to care for people, to shepherd people. The, past, the, the law of the church is meant to be a pastoral law. And that should always be the guide of anyone who judges in the church and who discerns that always have to have priority. And so church law is actually, in, in many cases, extremely flexible. So there's very often, it would go beyond the scope of this, <clears throat> this walk to give you examples, but it's, there are so many places in church, in canon law, where it's, it starts with, oh, so these are the rules, this and this and this. However, in this or this circumstance, when, you know, then it's up to the judgment of the local ordinary, the bishop, or the kind of uh, outsourced responsibility of the priest. And then you can make changes. But uh, this, is, this is the rule. These are the changes. And then, another thing, if you know anything about church history, on a number of issues, the church has also changed its opinion and its worldview. Thankfully, thankfully, because the church is founded by Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit... The Pope is the successor to Peter, who was appointed by Christ and given authority. But at the same time, this doesn't mean that every single pastor, theologian, or faithful uh, man or woman is, uh, is infallible and knows it all and is always right. It doesn't mean that the church has always made the right decision. My golly, there have been popes that were criminals <laughs> that were the worst of the worst I mean we criticize famous people today about sometimes their immoral behavior well there have been popes that, that have done worse <laughs> and yet there is always at the same time there is this divine inspiration and the, the institutional part of the church including the way that the church is organized with this hierarchy. The church is not a democracy, um, but it is a hierarchy. But it doesn't mean... I mean, that in itself is founded on, on Scripture and, and, and on the early centuries of Christianity and it's been an, an, a, a very steady tradition. However, the way in which the people that actually form this hierarchy and this, this, the structures of the church, the way in which they talk and act and behave, 
or sometimes don't listen and and talk say the wrong things and hurt people instead of helping them judge instead of carry someone that is part of that's also part of the church but that is definitely not always god's will there have been moments of huge reform in the church where women would stand up i remember just um this summer i was in siena you've got saint catherine of siena she was this young girl extremely pious and yet she stood up to become one of the most powerful women of her time went to see the pope to tell him you have to come back to to rome you need to do something wake up she was like a, a almost like a game of thrones character you know you've got these strong girls sometimes and women and uh the church history is full of examples like that where the the people in charge were not on on the right track and had to be corrected by the people and so that too is part of church history but we tend to forget that and now i'm getting to my final conclusion of this walk and what i wanted to share with you um this is often forgotten in times where um people in the church feel insecure um because of change we don't like change nobody likes change it frightens us frightens us and it can evoke this reaction pattern that's either fight or flight or both <laughs> we fight while we're fleeing and we we try to fly when when uh, while we're fighting but fight or flight are not uh so i need to figure out where to go I'm, a bit lost here in the woods I'm following all these horse tracks here and now i'm on a junction with literally roads go oh, this is a, a cross point <laughs> a crossway i'll just go to the left it's probably the wrong direction but who cares um the uh and this fight or flight this this reaction of uh, aggressions like but i am right and you need to listen to me um is very understandable but it's not always what god wants us to do and part of the i think the big crosses that we are all carrying in the church in the western world today is this massive polarization where we we have turned to tribalism uh we feel like we have to fight the good fight but it's culture wars and we 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 abs, abs, absolutize we <laughs> we we institutionalize certain forms that we hold on to because it gives us um safety and uh, it, it identifies us and but but instead of of deepening our faith It, it we weaponize it we use it as a as a fortress around us so that we don't have to listen to all the people that are wrong <laughs> that we consider to be wrong and so i think the best remedy against polarization is um yeah what is it i would say it starts with listening and this is a very biblical principle you know the, the this important prayer that jewish jewish people pray so often it's shema israel listen 
Israel, the Lord is your God. You are not God. The Lord is your God. And you have to listen to him. And you have to listen to yourself. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit that works in you. You have to listen to your conscience. Listen to the poor, the oppressed, the, the, the sick, the suffering. Listen to people because you always put yourself... Um, how would you say that? Always lift up someone higher than yourself. Instead of, instead of putting someone down, lift that person up. Even if it's only in prayer. Always consider the other to be superior to you. I'm not talking about submission here in a, in a pathological <laughs> context. But, but it's, it's having esteem for the dignity of someone else. Even if there are reactions you feel, you notice in you that are fright, that are, that are fearful, that are rejecting because you don't want to deal with it. A little bit like in the story uh, where this bishop is flustered and is like, I don't want to deal with this right now. I, I feel threatened. I don't know. I don't know what to say. So I'm just pushing you away. Um, you know, I, I have great esteem for this bishop, by the way, as I have for so many of my colleagues. But it doesn't mean that I can't also be critical about some of the things that they do or say just as much as I try to be critical to myself when I, when I say things that hurt other people and that, that they bring to my attention. And sometimes I, my rash judgments or, or, um, or easy condemnations or hurtful words, I, I try to listen uh, and also to listen to your own fears and admit that you have them and that we often disguise our fears in mechanisms of defense instead of taking it as an opportunity to grow because having fears is human and Jesus was scared but Jesus in the Garden of Olives when he was about to be arrested and knew what was going to happen and he was so afraid he didn't run away and he didn't fight put down that sword if I wanted to uh, stage a fight you know God would have sent his angels but I don't want to fight and I don't want to run away Father if it is your will let it be done I pray that I don't have to but if it's your will I will obey and I will stay put so Jesus in, his, in the most important moment of his life right before he gives his life to, to us in, on the cross, tells, shows us, he just doesn't even tell us, he shows us that fight or flight is not following the footsteps of Jesus. Um, Jesus makes himself extremely vulnerable. Um, he doesn't try to overpower the Romans or the Pharisees or anyone who is yelling at him. But he, uh, he chooses to be as vulnerable as we often are, as hurt as we are when we are burdened by words or judgments or whatever. And so to wrap things up and go back to where we started this, this, this walk, what do you do when you feel hurt by the behavior of 
representatives of the church. When, when you are, when you feel rejected, or when they have, when you feel that the church has rejected people that you care for, and you want to protect and you want to defend. What if? What do you do when you feel that the way you think and the opinion that you have are 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 discarded as being uh, not Catholic? Or heretical or whatever what do you do if you notice in yourself again I'm talking about myself as well flight or fight then maybe stay put and think about it a little bit more what is happening why do I feel this why do I why, why do I want to run away from this is this because it hurts too much which is valid Am I triggered too much? Then maybe yes. Maybe, maybe you should step away. Um, or maybe find another place to go. If, if you, for instance, you're in a parish. My mom, when we were young, um, often told us, you don't go to church because of the pastor. And uh, we had priests in our parish that, you know, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But my mother always said that's not that's not a good reason to not go to church anymore because you, you go to church for Jesus. And I've I've kind of accepted that because you know my parents tell me so. But the more I think about it, the more I think that is a little bit too easy because sometimes there can be situations where um, uh, if you keep being triggered by a pastor or a representative of Christ. It can actually block you from opening yourself up to Jesus. It can make you resentful. I have a very good friend of mine. He's probably listening to this podcast. Who went through one of the hardest times in his life. When, uh, I won't go into detail. But when he was um, engaged in the church and on a path. That he put all his heart in. And I think he, I still think he was called to, and still is called to. But then he was confronted with horrible behavior in that same church that he loved so much. And in a certain way, I think, still loves. But that trauma uh, continued to, to be re-triggered over and over and over again. And even though he kept stepping forward on the path of, the, of faith and uh, trying to find his place in the church. The church did nothing but reject him every single time and, and, and criticize him and belittle him and, and not acknowledging him all the way up to the highest levels in the church. I know this man. I know his heart. And so I know it was absolutely unjust and scandalous. But he decided to step away from the church and to find another community outside of the Catholic Church where, where it, it feels different and the people are supportive and open and prayerful. And, and that is slowly healing him, healing his relationship and his trust in God, which I don't think he ever lost 
but it's still very difficult to live that relationship with Jesus when his personnel is constantly telling you that you're not good enough and that you, you don't belong. And so rather than getting hurt over and over again, and this is also uh, one of the things that uh, psychology teaches us, uh, reliving trauma is not, is not always a wise path. It, being sometimes this is kind of a, a black and white idea that uh, that therapy consists in just re-exposing yourself to trauma and, and reliving all your your horrible memories and no that can actually in in many cases just just uh, deepen the damage because <laughs> you're getting hurt even more even after the events so that's not so again. If going to church and being confronted with um, shepherds that are hurtful, whether it is intentional, intentional or subconscious, because again, pastors are just people. They too can m- m- make errors in judgment. I make them all the time. They too can say things that are hurtful, even without realizing it. But they're all even, it's even worse, there are also priests and bishops that are running away from themselves and have, you know, act and talk in a way where they're, they're fighting themselves. I have so many examples of that. Where you, where you feel that, that the, the harsh language that they have for others, the judgment on other people is actually a translation of the judgment they have for themselves or an internalized parental judgment or whatever and then it deviates from the truth it becomes truth without love it it's um it's it, that's a huge menace for for church doctrine is when and this is usually a very subconscious uh it just slithers in um, where we start to confuse the truth and seeking the truth with wanting to feel safe and wanting to be right because I'm actually afraid and maybe emphasize the rules because I know that I'm actually breaking those rules but let let me then you know show myself as the knight with the (laughs) with the shield and the sword standing up for justice because I'm actually petrified that I am not doing what I preach. And so it's, it's human. People in the church are also fallible. They're also sinners. Pope Francis says it time and time again, just recently in an interview with American Magazine, he says, I have to go to confession twice uh, a month. So every two weeks I go to confession because I mess up. I hurt other people. I make bad decisions. Every time I don't listen to the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm making a grave mistake and I mess it up. So that, I think, is such a quality. Nobody expects priests or bishops to be perfect. We would love them to be. But just as parents, uh, other parental figures are fallible and, and, and also are damaged goods. But... By all means, know yourself and listen to your heart and acknowledge your fears 
and your flight or fight reactions to prevent yourself from hurting other people by lashing out. Um, so in some cases it is better to step away so it won't um, continue to damage you uh, which then actually can can start people will 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 start to mistrust God. How can God allow people like that in our church? Uh, is he even there? You know, is he in charge of his church or not? In other cases, I would say, well, and uh, maybe not in other cases, but in in addition to this, I would say the church is not just the others. The moment you start to think about that, it's like, I don't belong to the others. They, that, that church. Then you're actually, I think, already forgetting something super important. That church is also you. Nobody has the right to kick you out. The only situation where you put yourself at distance is, is if you... If you hurt the relationship between you and God, between you and your brothers and sisters. This is why the church has excommunic excommunication and has sanctions. When people hurt other people or hurt their relationship or their dignity, their relationship with God, that is where the church has to stand up for others. And that's where the church will sometimes judge to protect what is, what is vulnerable. But in, in, in any other situation, the church has not the right, or people of the church, because the church is you, nobody has the right to kick you out. Especially when you are trying to walk the path of humility and when you're trying to listen to God's voice, uh, it doesn't immunize you against making mistakes. That's, that's, that's normal, but as long as you keep listening to your heart, listening to, to God, uh, trying to seek forgiveness for the times you messed up, God will always put you back on track. And, but, but nobody has the right to tell you, you're no longer part of this church. Get out of here, and there is no redemption for you anymore. Which is unfortunately what a lot of people feel the church does. The church is also you. So there's always something you can do when you're confronted with a church that disappoints you and hurts you and pains you. It is to try to be different. Try to do the right thing. You, someone who has been abused by, by his parents. Um, you can either perpetuate that abusive behavior and you, that, that's how you get generational trauma or you tell yourself, I am no longer, the buck stops here. I don't want to be part of this. I'm going to seek help. I want to work on myself because I want to do it differently. Uh, and I don't want to pass on the bad stuff that I have experienced because I know how it feels. I want to be an agent of good and a carrier of light. That, that is our vocation. That, that is what I would tell anyone who says, I have trouble thinking believing that I still have, that there's still place for me in the church. I'm, I'm thinking of walking away. I would say, don't. Because you know, more than anyone else, how much the church needs people like you that understand how, how 
the church fails its calling and it and the church needs you to show that there is another way the church in the catholic how can i best summarize the catholic attitude it's and and it's never just or or you are a pagan or you are a christian and either you belong to us or we kick you out the church is always about reconciliation trying to bring people together to to continue to be in dialogue with anyone and dialogue goes both ways again constantly <laughs> feel the need to specify this for people that may misinterpret what i say it doesn't mean you don't have principles it doesn't mean that you don't have beliefs but it is the humility to first listen to other people that may disagree with you so it helps you to discern whether what you believe and you uphold is truly what the church teaches and what is per- perennial what is eternal and and what is temporal and culturally influenced and may change etc uh, the church to in order to grow needs delicacy needs prudence these are very important christian values that the church has tried to practice for centuries we should not give up on that in times where we feel threatened and we believe that if we don't uphold the sword and the shield of justice and truth that we will be crushed by secularism or whatever other perceived threat jesus wasn't afraid to be vulnerable and small because he knew that god was right there beside him and that's what we should never forget <laughs> this doggy tells me it's time to uh, <laughs> to stop thank you so much for the privilege of your time and for your your uh, uh, your patience to listen to uh, to this walk i hope it helps you let me know of course if you're a patron in the in the on the discord server if uh, if this answers uh, uh, this helps you in in this conundrum that um, that people were talking about um and uh, and otherwise feel free to uh, to message me in another way or, or if you have additional questions or maybe you're listening to this and you're like yeah but but what about this situation you know let me know um and and we can think together about about and we can discern <laughs> right i don't i don't have the truth or i don't always know exactly how to handle every situation i'm hopefully you know this by now i'm learning much uh, just as much as you are at, at every step of the way that isn't that part of being a follower of jesus all right we'll talk soon god bless <laughs>